Hello, I'm Mary Portas and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow, people, planet and profit in that order. It's the future. Are you ready for better? Welcome back to The Kindness Economy and if you've just joined us on this journey, let me give you a little update on what's happened so far. So I have been questioning for many, many years how we might be able to make work better. Well, not just for individuals, but for us all. How could companies give more than they take, create positive impact rather than negative? And so, well, I think it was at the start of 2020, I got up on a stage to deliver this in a TED Talk and I called it The Kindness Economy. Three months later, COVID hit, and we all experienced this major shift. The kindness economy was needed more than ever. So my team at Porters and I, we started to talk about how we could bring this idea to life and work with businesses who wanted to create change. From that came the first series of this podcast, and as we put together the guest list, I was so happy to realise there were far more similar-minded business people out there than I'd previously thought. There was hope. So what's happened since then? Well, there was a book deal from Penguin. Nice one. And because of that, I got to talk to even more people on the ground who were trying, sometimes failing, but getting back up again. Some who were succeeding from day one. But all of them came together to create the movement for something better. They wanted more than just making the largest profit in the fastest time. They believed in building something with longevity that didn't negatively impact people or planet, but also did make profit. And through these interviews and meetings with an incredible range of people, from CEOs of large companies to people who'd set up on their own, I heard so many inspiring, heartfelt stories. Stories that can help us define what the kindness economy is all about. That book that Penguin said they'd like to publish, well, it's called Rebuild, How to Thrive in the New Kindness Economy. And it's a perfect place to start your own journey. Okay, plug over, but let's get real for a moment. We're not skipping into the sunset together. This is tough. We've had COVID plus decades of thought that profit at any cost equals success in business. There is one big, massive tide to turn. But in writing the book and learning so much along the way, I realised that the most important factor in allowing this movement to take root far and wide is simply to keep talking about it. The kindness economy is a work in progress. There's no rule book or 10-minute manager type fix. Change happens incrementally, experientially, flowing from one person to another, one organisation to another, until it becomes a true shift. And I believe the way forward is through personal stories, lived experiences, listening and learning and sharing with one another as we forge a new and better path. So I'll keep talking and listening as I learn, and I hope you do too. Which is why we're back with a new series full of inspiring stories by fascinating people, all forging a new way in business. I'm Mary Portis. Welcome back to The Kindness Economy. 
Chinese economy is supported by Dell Technologies. So who have I got down the Dell tube pipe? Zoom pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have Emma Gregan from Dublin. Oh, what a lovely accent. I love the Dublin accent. I want you to tell us, because I know that you guys at Dell have been doing this, you've got a network called Dwen, which is a Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. Can you tell me what that does and what you've been doing? The Dell Women's Entrepreneurs Network has been bringing female entrepreneurs together for over 10 years now. And we've actually grown to 80,000 members strong globally, which is fantastic. It's a global community fueled by podcasts, webinars, tech talks, supporting female entrepreneurs. So what you do is you give access to women entrepreneurs from around the world. And if one thing we've learned through COVID is community is utterly vital. Thanks, Emma Gregan. Go out and get the sun on that lovely Dublin day. So if you want to know more, go to Dwen.com and learn all about the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. So later on, I have Rosie Brown from Cook, who is my guest on The Kindness Economy, but I've got one of my homies back. Yes, we've all missed her, Miss (laughs) Emily Bryce Perkins. Welcome back. She's had a baby, haven't you? I have. I was like, where is he? Oh, no, he's at nursery. Um, What was it like? Mad and fun and wild and two weeks before lockdown, so had my own little bubble going on. And that was actually really good. I can so imagine that. I genuinely can. I think actually there's a little bit of me that's a little bit jealous of that. Honestly, last summer, I remember you texted me maybe in June or July and you were like, you've chosen the right year. Yeah. (laughs) Chosen it. Chosen the right year to go on maternity leave. And had that wee bubba and your man. How fantastic. Couldn't be better. I know. So, Ems, who have you found that you believe this week is really shining example of the kindness economy in action? Well... You know when you go on Instagram and you're looking and you you see your little mates and they've got all their like cool things in their houses and you're like where's that from where's that from so my friend Suze is always picking up great pieces and um, the other day she put this like it was a little soap dish screw top and I was like where's that from Suze turns out it's from this company called Know the Origin this woman called Charlotte who was studying at the London College of Fashion when that horrendous um, explosion in the the factory in Bangladesh happened do you remember When that happened, she just thought, what the fuck? Like, this mm. this is just horrendous. Like, all these poor families, all these people working. So she went over and met with the cotton farmers and everyone's supply chains. And she just thought, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a more transparent way. There's got to be a kinder way to do this. Especially when you're, you know, working and um, studying in London College of Fashion. You obviously see yeah. how quickly, how full on it can get. And she basically set up her own business, sourcing correctly, you know, making sure that everyone in the chain was empowered and like went, you know, met all these different cotton farmers and partnered with amazing manufacturers. So making sure that the supply chain the whole way through to her little abode, I think it was actually in her house in Manchester when she first started doing it, was all legit. And and basically just just transparent. Yeah, like everyone was, you know, everyone was happy and being treated with kindness. And it's really taken off. And now she has like, there's over 200 brands that now sell through her oh, I love and she's that. got this amazing pop-up in Angel right in that um, weird bit and like I'm glad it's there because it's like a funny old little place that shopping centre isn't it but it's so cool to see this shop there 
that was in like I think it's taken over where the oasis was so what a positive story that like yeah. you know because it was yeah. right on the corner and yeah. now um, and now you can go in there and you can buy amazing clothes you can buy little soap dishes and you oh, know exactly what's going what's on it called? it's called Know the Origin Know the Origin in Angel is she doing yeah. it online as well yeah her Instagram is just Know the Origin and you get lovely little stories about all the different pieces and oh. it's just a great you know it's a girl that just you know wanted to see what the hell was going on went out there got it sorted and now there's a whole load of people benefiting and everyone's enjoying the lovely products as well so nice one good on nice you Charlotte one. I'll be looking at that I yeah. like the idea of the soap dishes because I tell you what when you go to hotels or wherever not that I have been anywhere <laughs> like let's talk about it but thinking about this I don't want to have soap in plastic containers no so bringing your own little soap I, yeah. still, I can't quite do the soap for hair hair yet that's not good or oh your armpits God, I tried it on my armpits don't they have the little soapy I'm not quite there yet either <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Emily thank Thank you. Lovely to have you back and see you again next week. See ya. My guest today is Rosie Brown, co-CEO of the food company Cook. You probably know this company and might well have eaten one of their meals. The big veggie lasagna one. I've got all the crew coming down to the house on a Friday night is probably my favourite. But what you might not be so aware of is that this is a business built on some incredible core principles. Did you know, for instance, that for every child's meal you buy from Cook, they donate a school meal to a child living in one of the world's poorest countries? They also gave away more than 200,000 meals to the needy during COVID. This is the kindness economy in action. At its heart, Cook is a family business. Founder Edward Perry was inspired by his parents' frozen cake company to set up on his own, and his brother joined the firm. Rosie, his sister, did too, and is now co-CEO. And from the beginning, the siblings determined to do business differently. An early B Corp, they became one in 2013. Their website states... We believe a business is the most potent instrument of positive change in the world today. We seek to show how business can create shared and durable prosperity for all, rather than simply maximise returns for shareholders. All of this, of course, was why I wanted to talk to Rosie, but also because I was interested to hear her thoughts on the fact that food's really taken centre stage over the past year of the pandemic. From panic buying to eating at home, again, And again, COVID has really affected our relationship with and awareness of food. But before we start on that, let's go right back to the early days and what inspired Rosie and her brothers to create this kind of business. And yes, you guessed it. It all started where it so often does, at the kitchen table. We were brought up in a a house with a very strong faith, but it wasn't a religious faith or a judgy faith. It was a a real lived faith and mum uh, used to go to church every Sunday and she used to always bring home people who needed a meal so our Sunday roast was all about hospitality and it was all about you share what you have with those who need it so we had the local divorcee we had the local widower we had the young mum with children on her own so our, our family meal table was always shared um, on a Sunday so I think that was that and then I think they had a bakery business And they always employed ex-addicts because their partner used to run a centre for ex-addicts. It's a long story. But so right from a young age, we were kind of getting to know all sorts of people. And while they were sort of nice middle class to do people, we were sort of happily, you know, going to work with people from all sorts of backgrounds without judgment. Um, 
So I think that definitely had a bearing on all of us is just how you live your life is is without judgment and doing what you be- what you can for other people. So I think that's probably in the roots of all of us. Now all of our faith journeys have taken wildly different directions, but but I think that was the seed. And we all used to groan, you know, your mum used to bring someone home and we were like, oh no, who is it this week? Um, can't it just be the family? But of course, over time it teaches you, I think, that you do what you can for other people, definitely. So yeah, we blame the parents. <laughs> no, but it is a wonderful thing. I mean, we, we were talking about faith. I, I was talking with uh, you know a friend of mine the other day on how that that... that connection whether it's a religious thing or you know that but that community of going to a place of worship whatever shape it is and then connecting which is what your parents did we miss so much of that in the world today don't we um you know because religion let's face it has got a bit of bit of a shit reputation <laughs> the patriarchy not for that reason <laughs> <laughs> not for that reason but yeah. you know your parents yeah, yeah. brought that community sense back into their home didn't they so so, so community for me is yeah. it's what connects us it's what you know, we always say at Cook, the real richness of life lies in relationship. I'm absolutely I'm so convinced of that. And actually, that's what life's all about. And I think, you know, religion for some brought that, you know, hasn't necessarily worked for me. But yeah. community does, you know, yes. I think it connects us. Yes. And food for me is lies at the absolute heart of that because it's such a great enabler for connection. Yes. You know, it's the social glue that holds us together and that holds families together. Uh, communities together relationships so I love the idea of food as being central to building community we're now living in a society where women as we know have taken on more and let me tell you it doesn't matter what stats will come out we're still the ones mainly running the yeah, home absolutely picking up what, what what food needs to come in what goes in the fridge yeah thinking about what needs to be done for the week could they, there still be frozen food packages out there that are nutritious and could do that job yeah, absolutely. Okay. But I think it's not just about price. I think it's about value. Mm. So, for example, we're premium, but you look at a spag bowl. I always sort of... Let's look at a spag bowl, Let's look at a Rosie? spag bowl. But a spag bowl is really interesting one because it's £4.50. It's cooked with love and care. It's full of nutrition, well-sourced ingredients. And people say that's very expensive. The same people will go and buy a sandwich and a coffee yeah. and spend more... And won't think that's expensive. Yeah. So it's really perplexing to me. We've got a cultural thing that food, a main meal, for me, that feels like good value. Yeah, that's the two words, though. See, I talk about this in my book, Value and Values. So my mother used to put the good value. What was good value? Yeah. There's value that's cheap, but what is good value? Yeah. Good for you. Now, that is the biggest thing I think we need to educate in the fashion industry and in the food industry. Yeah, absolutely. What is value? And re-educating people, I think, about what good food costs and if we want to sort of live in a society where we have farmers and farming communities and uh, we have food jobs that are valued and paid properly and all of that 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 is going to come at a cost Um, so look I totally I totally believe in democratization of the food food system I really I really don't like the kind of elitist vibe that that there is in some areas of the food system Um, and you know, the more we can do to bring that value message to life, I think, is, is you know, where it's going. Because you could be in supermarkets and just within the freezer section, you know, couldn't you? But you've opened up stores and that must be a part of your sort of community initiative as well. Talk to me about those. So the reason we're not in supermarkets is um, 
is because we're control freaks. No, we're not control freaks, but we are we are big on freedom and independence. So so all of our values are kind of around freedom and independence. And and we could make a quick buck selling to supermarkets very quickly. And we've chosen not to do that because essentially they become a very big part of your business very quickly and they become very difficult to say no to and yeah. at that point you're you're sort of yeah. forced into promotions margins being hammered brand erosion mm. but but you can't say no so for us to build a really independent food business that could really live by its values and do things how we wanted to do them uh, we had to do it ourselves so that's why we're not currently in the big four supermarkets and that's been something that's worked for us and the thing I love about the high street is we can connect with our community and you know we can bring food back into the community otherwise he wouldn't know Anna in your shop we can welcome people as they come into (laughs) our stores we can have a relationship you know we have this kindness fund where you know we can our shop teams have been brilliant connecting with local partners and giving food away to people in their communities who need them so you know I'm a really big advocate of the idea that the high street if it's independent can be massive for the local community and I know I don't need to convince you of that Mm. but but we're proving that can be done and so I'm really inspired by that idea. So you would have managers who will know whether people in their local community need maybe a free meal and you give them license to do that the freedom and responsibility to do that themselves absolutely and on our recruitment criteria for our shop managers is now people who are already have have demonstrated that they're into and invested in the local community so that is that is part of how we recruit as well because those those are the people we want running our shops you know i'm sitting here as a 60 year old woman and people say to me yeah well you know you've made your money so it's all right to talk about the kindness economy you know but when you're going up the ladder (laughs) and up against it or when the shit hit the proverbial fan where money was really tight how did you get through i want to ask you that is there been a time where these values that you've got you've had to go God, can I really sit with these? Has there been a time where you've been up against it, where you thought, God, I can't be as kind and decent in business because I need to survive? Yeah, regularly, I think. You know, business requires making tough decisions. and But I believe they can always be done with kindness and compassion. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Um, and I think in 2008, 2009, we had a... The business had a near-death experience. So... We were pretty exposed. We'd been racing out new shops. We had a lot of debt. Lehman Brothers went down. Our sales dropped by 10% overnight, and we were very exposed. And it was, it was, we were clinging on uh, with our fingertips at that point to survival. And we didn't want to give up, and we didn't want to let VCs in, and we didn't want to go into administration. And that really made us evaluate, right, well, what happens when the chips are down? And I think what we did in that is we had to lay people off I think it was done with kindness and with good reason um, and without rancor. And we ploughed everything into the product. So at that point, that was the one thing we didn't compromise on. So we kept the quality of the ingredients. We kept the quality of the cooking. So it is hard. And at that point, everything had to go out of the boat to survive. But we did keep behaving, I believe, I hope decently throughout it no it's interesting you say that because I've often had you know uh, people say to me will you talk about the kindness economy but you know you've let people go but it doesn't mean that you just take in and you compromise a business whether it's going to continue and give other people jobs you have to take those decisions and make those decisions and it is people's livelihoods but if you do it with respect and kindness at the centre 
it's how we have to deal with everything don't you don't you agree i mean that's the most important thing so absolutely you cannot have no boundaries in business because i think that is unhelpful to everybody you end up with people in jobs that they're not capable of doing and then they fail and there's nothing kind about that either so I think you just all you can do is be transparent be open be honest and do what feels right and sometimes that's being generous with money sometimes that's being generous with contacts and helping them find other jobs sometimes it's about just being kind but but actually not doing anything and just keeping people in jobs where they can't succeed is deeply unkind so businesses move on so yeah so just on that you it's a big business now how do you make sure that the franchise operators and owners are part of what you have built this culture this belief system so, so franchise is quite an interesting one for us um, we started franchising in 2009 just after the crash and it was a it was a way we could grow the business without having a lot of capital to spend. Mm. And we owe our franchisees a lot. They really helped through that time. But actually, we stopped franchising in 2013 and haven't taken on any since. So they're about a third of our business at the moment. It has been challenging at times because as we've grown, we've been able to afford to do things in our business for more impact. And a good example is potentially the living wage. But when you then go to the single operator shop owner, and ask them to put the living wage and it really does impact them mm. and and so I get that it was difficult so so you end up with this slight brand disconnect where the brand can't talk about a lot of what we're doing because of a third of our shops aren't doing it yes. so you then have to rely on kind of franchise agreements and we spoke to a lot of people about how do you run the franchise you know how do you run your franchise business and and it seems that you run a franchise business with a big stick and a lot of lawyers letters <laughs> but that's just not how we do business and like <laughs> that's never going to be our approach so we we are all there now on the living wage and our franchisees have come with us and we're currently actually in a kind of big renewal process where we've put a lot of our impact into the franchise agreement so people know what they're signing up to but that's definitely been a challenge trying to grow a franchise business and a retail business but you you can't ask other people to put their money where your mouth is ultimately yes, you can't but you can grow what the brand stands for and you make that can. more powerful so in turn they are benefiting in that way absolutely absolutely mm. and I think now we're all completely aligned so we've got relationships with about 20 franchisees as I say they're super important part of Kirk and we're really grateful for everything they do so a really important pillar um, but yeah no no the, the community is now closed <laughs> so you've gone from strength to strength and we often think that small means impactful and large means value less yeah you know it's that we do yeah and there's always that turning point where it's how do you keep this how how when you get to a certain size can you leverage your values and invest money in them you know what is your aspiration now what what is it now that you want now that you know your business is financially stable yeah so so we've actually seen as as our sort of financial success has gone on we've seen our impact go hand in hand it's like a dual track and so that's really exciting so as we've got more stable we're 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 sort of looking to the future now I mean literally now at the moment and I'm my my dream is to build a true stakeholder business so we sort of have an a prof, an employee profit share of six percent of pre-tax profits go to the employees I'd like to see as we get more financially stable that move up to ten percent we currently give 5% of our EBITDA back into, invested into our communities. Um, 
where our shops are operating or our kitchens are operating. I'd like to see that move up towards 10%. I want to see the shareholders get a return. Owners are really important and we've been so lucky to have good owners um, who've allowed us to do what we've done. So when you say owners, you mean your your partners who are, who are running your shops? Um, no, I mean the shareholders of Cook. Oh, the so, shareholders. So they invested been, in the early the, days. Yeah, absolutely. They've been brilliant. And luckily, we've had no VCs or anything t- to contend with. So we've had completely aligned owners, which has allowed us to do what we want. Um, and we're always grateful to them. So I think to build a true stakeholder business, I think, that is really embedded and rooted in our communities. You know, my sort of goal is that we want to open more shops and, and sort of high street locations. And I want it to get to a point where we're opening a shop and the local community is going, oh, great, Cook's coming. Not just because there's a great product, but because actually we're going to do something for their community as a result of being there. Yes. Um, so, yes. yeah, that's the, that's the dream. Well, that's a really wonderful dream and a vital one. And I'm just listening to you talking about shareholders because, you know, those, those words, those two words, shareholders, is the thing that often pulls businesses down. They Absolutely. keep feeding the shareholders. Yeah. They've got to make the profit so we forget about people and we forget Absolutely. about planet in between. Have you seen a shift, do you think, in that in, in the last few years now that we've... And I, I call it the COVID conscience as well. I think we've awoken a bit more to what we've been doing blindly. And, you know, have you seen businesses, do you think, shifting away from that and a kinder, uh, more shareholder that's going, OK, this is this is long term, not short term? Yeah, and, yeah. and I'm really hopeful about that. So, so when we started the B Corp... Uh, movement and Cook was a founding member and I think there was five businesses in a North London office on a rainy evening going how are we going to start this movement in the UK and people we were talking to businesses and there were so many hurdles why would we sign up to that why I don't know lots of shareholders not sure anyway I think we're now at 400 B Corps in the UK and growing and we're applying yes excellent we've gone we in we need you we need I know you. we've gone in I hope I pass imagine if I don't get in how embarrassing I've just written a book on this we've gone in you'll be fine you'll be fine I hope so, so there's quite a lot of things you've got to tick the box on it is oh. but it's rigorous I but love that's that that's why we love it it's no bullshit yeah, yeah, you no, know, no, no it bullshit. is like you cannot get away with it literally so I love that so yeah I'm really hopeful and I I you know I don't read the financial pages a lot that's not my bag but I you know I dip in and out and I feel like the city's moving as well and that's what really needs to happen is the city needs to move on this and that, and and I feel there is movement and I'm excited about that. There's an energy shift isn't there it? You is. can feel it in the yeah. planet and I we I genuinely think we have to thank covid for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there was a lot of groundwork, but I think that, yes. that had gone in and yes. people were beginning to ask good questions. But I think COVID has just absolutely accelerated what I hope will be a really positive shift. Well, I think that there's always going to be the arseholes, or I call it the giver fucks and the don't give a fucks. There's also out there. They're out there. We've seen them in the headlines. And you just think, oh, my God, you know, because I was doing a talk the other day and I was looking at research and I was looking at one of the fastest downloaded app for fast fashion that got even faster and I'm like thinking oh my god how did they not get the memo yeah, yeah. that the world's changing so there is definitely the don't give a fucks out there but the give a fucks the kindness economy give a fucks of which you've been at the forefront are growing and I, I suppose the other one I want to ask you is it's during the pandemic food really made big news you know the school meals where they you know that beautiful government that we've got with their their long-term views and um etonians and you know 
don't give a fucks. Um, really, you know, that was just a joke over the, the school meals. And and there goes Marcus Rashford's campaign to improve them. So I was, I was talking about this even in my book, you know, the footballers that we used to hold up were, you know, Beckham with his tats and, and every ad possible that he's been in to advertise whatever watch and whatever. And then today it's this wonderful kid who's out there. I say kid. Yeah, he's in his 20s, same age as my kids, who went out on a limb and talked about food and brought his mother in and how, the relationship he had with his mother like you did. And I suppose I thought about that and just thought, we talk about community, they should have called in someone like you. I mean, well, you'd have done that, wouldn't you? Would you have done those school meals? Imagine in, instead of some faceless catering company, if they'd used local food companies... That would yeah, have been yeah. so much better, wouldn't it, for the community? Because everybody would have known if you were putting an old carrot and a crisp in, they'd have gone into you and gone, what the hell are you doing, Rosie? Because you were part of that community and you would have been called out sooner than some faceless company needing a really top footballer to put it into main news. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think he's done a remarkable Brilliant, job. right? Absolutely. Brilliant. What a guy holding yeah. the government to account like that. I think fantastic. And, you know, I th- honestly, when, when a guy goes and does something like that, I don't care where he gets the food from. I'm just delighted, you know, he's he's doing something about it and he's changed the political will because if we're going to change this system, we need some political will. And food is so far down on the government's agenda it's depressing and they've got to wake up and realize that actually if we want this healthy society the food is absolutely fundamental and it's got to move up the political agenda i was i was thinking about that because and exactly that my daughter works for the food farming and countryside commission as a researcher so she's working with all these small farmers and she's like mum She's like, literally, this is, the government's a joke on this. This is, you know, and you see these young energies coming out of university, going into this and knowing that this is the future and then, um, you know, nearly killing themselves on it. So I suppose the big thing is that the democratisation of food that we talked about earlier, you know, passing down those skills from generation to generation, you know, is it just a question of price or is it also about us bringing food in the way that you talked about it in that way of sharing sitting down together it is that it is the heart of a family I mean I just did I've just brought back the Sunday lunch again at home because it's been such a while we haven't done it and it was just so exciting you know seeing my elder son cycle over for lunch yesterday my brother coming with his partner my little son my daughter said I've been there soon I'm a bit running late it was just a wonderful feeling that we were all back together around the kitchen table yeah yeah and I you know I think that's one of the possibly one of the great benefits of the pandemic is lots of families have reconnected with the routine of eating together Mm. and for me that social side of food is everything and it's all about bringing together people over good food and the joy and all of that you know aspect of it so that's definitely I think something that from the pandemic that is here to stay and when it comes from to getting the democratization point I think you're right I mean price is always going to be an issue but low-income families and we work with a lot of them are often juggling jobs you know time is a real issue that's the thing and I think education is a real issue if you live in a family that hasn't cooked or doesn't cook and you have no education or food education at school and you haven't ever handled the stuff it's very difficult to kind of get a whole family cooking it's 
you know, you're into sort of multi-generational. For me, we have to put food back onto the school curriculum and we have to value food in schools. You know, you look at, you just look at our public services and how they treat food, everything from sort of prisons to hospitals to schools and it's appalling. Mm. And it's like, mm. as a culture, we don't value it as important. And I would love them to start with schools. And actually, I know Jamie Oliver's had a bash and Henry Dimbleby's writing the new national food strategy and I'm really hopeful for that but I think he's got a tough job well it's um, like Jamie Oliver had it on the food I did it on the high streets doesn't matter what you say yeah. if the government of the central policy doesn't change and we don't put it up as priority what we're talking about here in both instances is community caring connection and actually putting that at the heart the value system that we talk about that you talk about good value whether that's food whether it's our local community what does that do for our lives so on that I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests as I talk about the kindness economy what would you like to see in say five or ten years time in terms of food its production and consumption and the way that it's part of our lives and well-being so I'd love to see the different parts of the food system working together. Um, I'd love to see a more regenerative food system where we're really looking after the land. I'd love to see a more affordable food system, um, a nourishing food system where we value what we're putting into our bodies. Um, so for me, it's a system that's being kinder to people, kinder to farming communities, valuing food production jobs. Um, it's where food is central to our lives because I just think the social uh, connection food brings is so important for families and for communities. Um, and obviously, I think the planet. So, you know, I'd love to see farmers rewarded and incentivized for really looking after the land. And I'd like there to be some regulation for the ones who are not. Um, and for ourselves, I think um, that we're sort of nourishing our, ourselves and seeing that as really important. What a great woman. I thought a lot after talking with Rosie about how all the work that Cook does and the care that their business embodies. And it was planted by her parents' faith. And I'm not talking about doctrine and dogmatic moralising here. Theirs was a faith of love, connection and generosity. And it just reminded me how, when I was growing up, I grew up with parents who were committed Catholics but grew distant from religion in my adult life because I felt so much of the doctrine just didn't talk to me. But my chat with Rosie just reminds me at its best what great religion should be about and that is community and helping those in need, being a light and a connection. And the question, of course, for all of us is how to translate these kinds of personal values into our businesses. And I don't mean that we all need to be setting up a soup kitchen, but I do think enriching your community can happen in tiny ways. And I, I was thinking now that more of us are back in the office again after COVID, for instance, my team at Portus and I have instigated a, a new group diary event, which we call Lunch Tuesday. Every Tuesday, everyone has to move away from their screens, sit down around a table together, and we get their lunch. And it's just a, a vital moment of connection for us all. The things I learn about the team that I might not have known before, because we're busily working. And I love that, and it makes us all equal sitting around that table. So join me next week when I'll be talking to Simon Mottram, the founder of premium cycling brand Rafa. Here's a man who also believes in community. And trust me though, even if cycling isn't your thing, what he has to say about growing a brand that is literally loved is fascinating stuff. 
That's next week with me, Mary Portas, on The Kindness Economy. 